We're going to be continuing our series uh, called The King is Here, and we're looking at how the birth of Jesus is seen throughout the Gospels. And so to start it out a couple weeks ago, Rob spoke from the Gospel of John, and we saw a a version of the birth announcement in chapter 114, and this verse really stuck out to me. I'd never really uh, thought of this as a birth announcement, announcement, but it is exactly what it is, and it says, uh, in John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then last week, we heard from Will, and he had the challenge to present the birth narrative, but there is no birth narrative in, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, so he showed the purpose of why Jesus came. And he summed it up perfectly in Mark 10, 45. It said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so just as John had a thesis that Jesus came to be into this world as God, Mark's thesis that Jesus came into the world to be a servant. Spoiler alert about next week. We're going to be in the book of Luke And we're going to be talking about how Jesus came to the world as a man, and he's able to relate to humanity. And so the last two weeks, we sort of took a break from being in the book of Matthew, and now uh, we're going to return to be in the gospel of Matthew. And so we're going to be looking at how Jesus is portrayed in this gospel account. And I'll be sharing how this gospel shows that he is the king of kings. And as you guys remember, we've been talking about Matthew and how it was written. And if you can think back to the introduction, I wasn't here when we started, but we, Rob has laid the groundwork for us. And Matthew's audience is primarily and predominantly Jewish, and he intends to prove to the Jews that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah and King. The thesis here is that Jesus is the King of Israel and he is the fulfillment of all of the prophets. Uh, You're going to be hearing this phrase a lot, and so it was fulfilled, and so it was fulfilled. And Matthew is going to be recalling the Old Testament. And as he recalls the Old Testament, he's going to let you know this is prophecy fulfilled. And he's going to say, so it was fulfilled. And we're going to see this many times this evening. In the Old Testament, there were over 300 messianic prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled them all. There's a professor, uh, Peter Stoner, and he is the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College. And he made this statement. He's a person much smarter than I and much better with numbers than I am. Yeah, it's true. And he says this. He outlines the mathematical probability of one person in the first century fulfilling just eight of the most clear and straightforward messianic prophecies. Okay, so I said that there were 300 And if we just take eight of them for one person to complete them or to fulfill those prophecies, the statistic is one in 
10 to the 17th power. Okay, so that's the number right there. I, I, I think it's 1 in 100 quadrillion. Um, I have no sense of what that is. Um, but you're saying there's a chance, you know? <laughs> but, for me to, but for me to better explain this number, I have a little video here, and this is sort of in the style of Schoolhouse Rock. And so we're going to hear how the evidence is laid out in, in the prophecies here. So if you guys could please. How do you know what's true is really true? That's where the evidence comes in. Christ's offer to turn you into a new person is real if his claim to be God is true. So let's consider the evidence of eight prophecies proving his claim is true. Do you know what the probability factor is of only eight prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus? No. A one in ten to the seventeenth power. One in ten to the seventeenth power. Huh? That's one in ten to this many times. I don't get it. If you were to take ten to the seventeenth power Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies. How many? That's over a quintillion cookies. And spread them across the state of Texas. Yeehaw! They would cover every inch of the state and form a pile of Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies two feet deep. That's a lot of Thin Mints. A whole lot of Thin Mints. Now take one more Thin Mint and lick all the chocolate off, toss it into that pile and stir the whole thing up. Blindfold yourself, walk the entire state from Amarillo to Laredo, stopping just once to stoop down and pick a single blind Thin Mint cookie. Got it. Take off the blindfold. Aw, nuts. The chances of you picking the chocolateless cookie is the same as the chance that one person could have fulfilled just eight prophecies about Jesus in one lifetime. That's crazy. It's unthinkable. But Jesus Christ did not fulfill eight prophecies in one lifetime. Whoa. He fulfilled over 300. 300, girl! And 29 of them in just one day. The prophecies are historically documented. The facts that actually happened to Jesus are historically documented. There's only one thing left to do. I know. For me to weigh the evidence. It's all part of the evidence. Because if it is true that he is the Son of God, what he offers you, a new life in him, is real. Now I know it's real, whether I believed it or not. It's all part of the evidence. Oh, yeah. Because he is real. That explained it so much better than what I could have. But yes, um, that, that was fun, a little funky too. Um, but Matthew writes this again to the Jewish people to know that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. His writings are skillful and purposeful. And what we just heard, or what we're reading right now, are the opening arguments for us to weigh the evidence. And the book starts out, the gospel starts out chapter 1-1, and it goes through the genealogy 
that Jesus is the Messiah. And so it starts at Abraham. It goes through David. And it, I'll just read the first verse. I'm not going to read the whole thing for tonight for the sake of time. But I would encourage you all to just study these names and, and see the lineage of Jesus. This not quite as important today. Um, we don't really put much weight into genealogies today. I think half of us here would know who our great-great-grandparents were not going back 40-some generations. But here it is important to the, in Jewish culture. This genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Right there, it shows the importance of his line. These are the biggest names in Jewish history. Father Abraham. We all know the song. But he is the father of all of the Jewish people. From him grew the nation of Israel. His birth was rooted in history. But we're going to skip ahead. We're going to start in verse 18. And we're going to start here, and then we're also going to read all of chapter 2 eventually. But right here, it's starting to talk about the account of the birth narrative. And it says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they could come together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And here's this phrase, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to her son. And he gave him the name Jesus. So as we're reading this account and this narrative through the Gospel of Matthew, we are talking about the fulfillment of prophecy, but we're also going to be looking at the characters that play as well and be learning from them and what they did and how they reacted to this birth narrative. And it starts out with Joseph being the primary player here. And Joseph was able um, to see that, or he received word that, you know, Mary is pregnant. And right now he wasn't married. They, they hadn't consummated their marriage yet, but they were in a legal binding relationship the only way to get out of it is divorce. It wasn't like the engagements today where you just sort of give back the ring and say, well, see you later. But it was a big process. And because she was pregnant, it is something that she was unable to hide. Obviously, eventually, you're going to find out that she is with child. And so Joseph decided that, you know, he loved her because, because he wanted to do it quietly and not disgrace and make a big scene. But if he wanted to, he had every right to have her stoned. And even if she claimed, you know, the 
uh, it was the Holy Spirit, they probably would have stoned her out of blasphemy. And so he was a loving man, but he was also hurt. Joseph, it says, was an obedient man. And as the Lord appeared to him in a dream and he told him this, he said, okay, and he decided to obey. But the act of obedience was uncomfortable. He had to obey by faith, knowing what was going to await him. He stayed with Mary by faith. It was something that was going to stick with him, too, because people were going to talk. People were going to talk, and they were going to know. And they were going to see this child grow up and talk about that child and point, oh, there goes that child. Poor Joseph, man. Something, poor guy. His, his fiance cheated on him. Poor guy. And they were going to talk. So he had to understand what he was going to endure sticking with Mary. And he obeyed God. I think that's interesting and it's really encouraging sometimes. Because we, the decision of obedience or obeying what God has told us to do sometimes can be a little uncomfortable. But yet, we are to do it. And we see that in Joseph. Let's move on to chapter 2. And we're going to fast forward uh, from the end of chapter 1 to chapter 2. There's a, a span of about two years. And it says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he'd asked them, Where is the Messiah who is to be born? In Bethlehem, Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets had written. But when you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out the exact time the star had appeared, he had sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that, you, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. Here we see this phrase again. And so was fulfilled the, uh, what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. 
When Herod realized this, it realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and it's been in its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet of Jeremiah was fulfilled. We see that phrase again. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream and, uh, to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard Archelaus reigning in uh, Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Again, we see this phrase. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And so as we hash back through this chapter, we're going to, again, be looking at the characters here. And in total this evening, when it says, uh, and so it was written, or, and so was fulfilled, right there, there's been five prophecies. There's been five prophecies. The first character that we see here is King Herod. And he's such a fascinating individual because he finds himself the king ruling of the Jews, but he was not really a Jew. He was an Edomite who was given this role by the Roman Empire. And so, um, as we sort of skip past the genealogy, he knew that he really had no right to be the king of the Jews. In fact, um, it's completely opposite to who Jesus was. Jesus had the royal birthright that Herod did not. Herod fought and clawed and killed in order to seize hold of his throne. Um, he was the ultimate politician. He did his, whatever he could to try to please the people. He did building projects and tried to show how great that um, and, and, and make the Jewish people happy, but he also played the side and kept the Roman officials happy as well. He had an uncontrollable suspicion of everyone, which led him to kill many people, including several from his own household, his wife, his two brothers. He killed them just because he suspected them of treason. He was married at least nine times, and most of it was to strengthen his political ties. And so when King Herod heard about the Magi who traveled so far to worship, this king of the Jews, as you can imagine, he was disturbed. Not only was he disturbed, but it said all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Just because they knew how crazy this guy was. Or how jealous he was of his power and his position. A lot of times when we hear about the gospel... Or the birth story, you know, we, we think of it as good news. You know, go tell it on the mountains. 
that Jesus Christ was born. For Herod, this was not good news. This was a competitor. This was someone who was born and deserves the spot that Herod had. So he wanted to eliminate this threat. This conversation that he had with the Magi, it wasn't to help them. It was to find out who this baby was and, and eliminate it. And then we realize that he got duped by the Magi and his instincts kick in. Calculates the time of birth and then puts out an order to kill every child under two. And so this is where Joseph flees to Egypt until Herod is dead. And again, we saw that it was fulfilled. And this is, it's interesting here that Jesus, you know, I always thought this was sort of confusing, you know. He was born in Bethlehem. But then he went to Egypt. And it said he would be called out of Egypt, the prophet said. Um, and then it says that he would be called a Nazarene. So out of Egypt, he went and settled down in in the region of Galilee. And so I can understand people reading these scriptures and studying where the Messiah would be, and you see it would be from here and here in this place, and it's really difficult to understand, in, especially in that time, because really there wasn't transient people. You were from a region, you stayed in that region. I don't want to embarrass my wife, but we can sort of, I'm going to anyway. I guess I do want to embarrass my wife because I'm, Going to do that anyway, but I'll throw out the pleasantry of saying, I don't want to embarrass my wife, but um, if you ever know her and hear her story and her background, it's sort of a lot like this. Because they, we came from Peru, and you're like, oh, you were born in Peru? How's Peru? Well, actually, I was born in Chile. Oh, so you're Chilean. Well, no, I'm Argentine. My parents were Argentine, so I have the Argentine passport. But she also has a Spanish passport because her parents were from Spain. And so she has all these things, and this is sort of what is going on right here. All these circumstances come together where he could be born in Bethlehem, came out of Egypt, and also settled down and be called Jesus of, uh, of Nazareth. And so all, for all this to happen, it also shows us that God was in control of all of this so that he could fulfill every messianic prophecy so let's go back and talk about herod herod recognized that jesus was the king or at least he took the threat seriously you know if he wasn't really worried that jesus is the king or what there wasn't this remote possibility or chance that he had the birthright he wouldn't have done anything but this little baby was such a threat to him that it had to be eliminated. He had to do something about it. And really today, um, there's a lot of people who, who can act and respond like Herod today when it comes to Christianity or the idea of a God having control over their life. For the unbelievers who are anti-God, they're totally against the idea that Jesus is the savior of the world. They study to try to prove, disprove scripture. And they put down those who believe in the whole idea, the whole idea of religion. At the deepest level, these people don't want to give up control of their lives. 
They don't want to admit that they're sinners and they don't want to submit to God's ways. And they want to be in control of the things and do however they want. And ultimately, these people are threatened because Jesus demands first place in their life and they would rather die than give up control. Also, there are some Christians that fall into that category as well. We use a phrase here a lot at Hope Church, and you're going to, and I'm sure you've heard it if you've been coming here any, any amount of time, is that we want to make Jesus the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life. That's, the first part's easy. Here, Jesus, take my sins. Thank you. You can have it. You can have that junk. But I want to be in control of my life. No, Jesus demands it all. And so, in this character of Herod, as we we're looking at this story, can you see yourself in that? And obviously, I'm not that bad. I'm not trying to kill babies or anything. But is there something that maybe threatens your control or threatens your position and you, maybe it's not a baby, but maybe it's something else that you just don't want to give up or you are so afraid or threatened that you don't want to give control. Another character that we see here are the chief priests. The chief priests, although Herod was king of the Jewish people, he wasn't that familiar with the scriptures. And so he asked these religious leaders and, uh, and they were able to give him an answer about the, that the, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And really, any Jewish practicing Jew would be able to give that answer because they studied the Old Testament scriptures. And they would know that this was prophesied in Micah 5 too. These religious people knew the answers, but they did not seek to find Jesus. Even when the Magi came looking for the Messiah, they did not go with them to find Jesus. They just let the Magi go on. These people from the east traveled hundreds of miles to come to Jerusalem and to, to seek out this baby. But these religious leaders who were like, oh yeah, it's in Bethlehem. It's about six miles that way. They were perfectly content to stay there. They didn't want to take a little day trip to Bethlehem and just maybe check it out. They did not recognize that Jesus is the king of Israel and the fulfillment of the prophets. Otherwise, they would have traveled with the Magi. We can relate this a lot to this time of year of Christmas and also um, with the World Cup, too. And I'm going to say it like this. Yesterday, I watched a couple games with penalty shootouts. And it's amazing how many people believe in God and are praying during a penalty shootout. You go and you see all these players down on their knees praying, going, asking, God, please help the ball go in, or God, please make the goalie block this. It's amazing. Everybody, it seems like everybody's a Christian in, in the World Cup, just out there praying. And a lot of it, this time of year, with Christmas and seems like there are a lot of people who like the idea of the Christian message and that Jesus came and we sing away in the manger and it's really cute. 
see your nativity in uh, baby Jesus right there. People have grown up in, or around church, but ultimately this message has no consequence for them personally. They're missing the whole point. And these chief priests, these religious people, had the Savior of the world born six miles down the road, and they just completely missed it. They studied the scriptures. They studied the Bible. They knew the answers when asked. It's in Bethlehem. And they just did not put it together. Do not miss the point of all of this. And this is what Matthew's trying to say. He's giving us all this evidence here. And we can talk all the statistics, one in whatever number that is, 10 to the 17th power. We can put all this out and give you all the information, but it's up to you to really understand it. The last people that we're going to talk about are the Magi. And they came from the east looking for the one born king of the Jews. These Magi were likely from Persia, and that was about 900 miles away. And so they traveled for months. And how do these people from Persia learn about this star and this prophecy? It's super interesting to, under, to, to, to read about. I went down this rabbit hole, and I'd love to give a ton of information. For the sake of everybody here, I won't do that tonight. But it all goes back to the captivity of Babylon. And when Babylon took and conquered Jerusalem, and they took back captivities, and then Daniel, you find Daniel there, and he's in the king's court, and he's working for the king, and he keeps his Jewish traditions, and he starts, and he grows in favor, and he's one of the people on the inner circle, and they cultivate these, these people who are exceptionally smart, exceptionally bright, exceptionally talented. And that, there is David, or not David, Daniel, uh, with those people. And he is teaching and having influence and teaching the scriptures. All that gets carried along through the years. And so we fast forward to the birth of Christ and these people who have, through the influence of Daniel, have been studying and the star arrives and they see the sign. The Magi, although Gentile, were aware of the Old Testament scriptures and were watching for signs of the fulfillment. Not only did they know Micah 5.2, which we just read, they knew the other prophecies, such as Numbers 27.17, which says, A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. So they were familiar with the scriptures. And so when God sent the star that pointed the way to Jesus, not only were they paying attention, they took action. They responded. And they traveled for months to find this new king, and once they arrived and searched out the child, they bowed down onto the ground and worshipped and presented him with expensive gifts. How can we relate to the Magi? Well, they recognized that Jesus was the king of Israel and the fulfillment of the prophets. They searched, number one, they searched for Christ. 
And this is what, where we can make this personal. We each must make our own journey to find Jesus and meet him personally and make him a living reality in our lives. The second thing that they did is they worshipped Christ with their life. So we need to worship Christ with your life. The Magi worshipped Jesus. They sacrificed their time and they traveled great distance and it was a rough road, rough land. They sacrificed their comfort. They put aside their personal convenience in order to find Jesus. They gave the best that they had. And in the same way, we must be willing to sacrifice our time, our talents, and our treasure. The third thing that we see with the Magi is that they submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And they submitted to God's leading in their lives because as the Lord commanded them to return to their country by another route. It was an unfamiliar route because they came one way and they had to go back another. So they didn't really know where they were going. I'm sure it was the less convenient route. Probably a little more costly. May have been a little more dangerous. But sometimes God calls us to do what is in unfamiliar inconvenient, uncomfortable, and sometimes it's risky, costly, or dangerous. But if we really want to experience Christ, we must submit to his lordship. Again, making him the leader of our lives. So all this evidence is laid out by Matthew. We can go again, go over the numbers. One in 100 quadrillion We've seen how Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies. We, we noticed that as we read through the scriptures here. And as we talk about what Jesus has fulfilled and the, 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 the insane probability that it took for one person to do that, it gives us hope and it gives us a confidence that we can trust in God's word. Now here's the cool thing. There's still prophecies left to be fulfilled i'm not going to get going on that either but knowing what we have we have the factual evidence matthew has presented us with factual evidence that jesus christ is the king of the jews he is the king of kings he is the lord of lords and with that we need to weigh that evidence and make a decision again not just a decision to say hey take my sins, but a decision to say, okay, I can trust you with my life. We can see how God has orchestrated uh, all these events for him to fulfill the prophecies. God is in control. He can be in control of our lives too. We need to be able to know that he's completed his end of the bargain in the past so that we can trust him with our future. Again, the evidence is out there, but it's up to each and every one of us to weigh it. Let's finish in a word of prayer. Father God, I just thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you that you are the king and you came to be king father it's amazing to see just how powerful 
and how factual or that your story is. It's not just written in a book, Lord, but it can be proved through other writings in history, Lord. And we thank you that we just don't trust in some fairy tale, Lord, but we trust in a living God. And Father, right now I just pray that this will help us trust you with our future. Lord, we thank you for coming as a baby, but ultimately, Lord, being our king. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for dying on the cross to take our sins. We love you, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.